All right. Good evening. I bring you greetings once again from Metro Manila, the Philippines. It's a great joy to be back always here at Bergen Bible Baptist Church. Of course, every time we're here at Lodi, there's no way we will not pass by. I hope you don't mind that, but uh, we always look forward to that. Uh, thank you for your prayers. I did mention to, uh, initially when I communicated with Pastor Sam, I said, uh, uh, I'm thinking of having our first Sunday during our eight-week trip at uh, Bergen Bible Baptist Church. And of course, he accommodated. And then I just found out, uh, I think just last week, I didn't notice the, uh, the, the next uh, message that he was thinking of having a Bible conference from Friday and then all the way till Sunday. I said, oh, what? I didn't know it was going to start on Friday. <clears throat> but it's always a joint privilege, of course, to open up the Word of God and expound the text of Scripture because they were all written for our learning so that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Thank you for your prayers. I did mention also to Pastor Sam, please pray for my wife. Uh, my wife, uh, she's been under, you know, medical observation. She has had this problem with some electrical uh, irregularities in her heart, okay? So it's something electrical. It's not physiological. It's not anything of that nature. It's electrical. So I was joking, maybe I should bring her to Meralco, maybe so. But uh, I think three or four doctors have already looked at her, and she's had uh, this, uh, what do you call this, holster, three times so that the doctor can monitor her. And up until the last minute, so we were asking, can she come with me for this trip? And uh, there was one, uh, one last doctor we consulted, an elderly guy, the first time we met, and he said, I'm not quite sure about that because this can happen, you know, this can abruptly take her life anytime because of the irregularities. She, uh, this, the others say, well, that's up to you, et cetera, et cetera. Finally, what the la one of the last doctors we consulted said, well, whether you stay here or there, uh, the important thing is when if ever the inevitable happens, at least you should be with your family. So, so we had that uh, medical clearance. And then the other one was the, um, my wife got a, you know, a uh, um, non-revenue ticket. So in other words, she's in a wait list for, to be able to board. And we've been through this before. And I remember we were in Hong Kong and that was in February coming from a symposium. And my wife's, my mother-in-law was ill during that time. Literally, it was the cause of her ultimate death. But, uh, <clears throat> and it was just 10 minutes before actual flight. And uh, we we're all waiting, is she going to be able to board or what? So, but so far, 100% batting average, she's been able to, although it's always the last minute. Yesterday was not so bad. Things were kind of smoother. So I really appreciate your prayers all the way from Naia, all the way here. I didn't have a problem even coming through the Department of Homeland Security and all of that stuff. So we really appreciate your prayers and how the Lord just opened the Red Sea <laughs> and made us pass through so conveniently. All right, so uh, <clears throat> let's turn to Bibles. I was asking the Lord, what do you think, Lord, do I have to give this people, your people at Lodi? Okay. And of course, nothing short of the Word of God. All the 66 books of the Bible are inspired by, are writ, were written by men, fallible men as they were. Nonetheless, they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
and therefore the process of the Holy Spirit moving them resulted in a, an inspired text. It is the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, every word of it. And therefore, we have a lot to learn on with this thick book. Remember, 66 books of the Bible. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, so there's a lot to learn. And uh, so, uh, just, so I was thinking Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. So it's got to be a four-part message, four-part series. Okay. So I was browsing through my notes. Lord, what will be just prefer perfect, appropriate message for your people there? So I had a three-part message, three-part series on a Bible character. And we're going to study for the next three uh, until Sunday on the character of Joseph. Okay. But uh, I said four-part series. So I broke it down into four because there's so much material there anyway. And I just found out this evening uh, that, no, it's going to be three parts because tomorrow, I think, is going to be a celebration or of your or the champions of the camp and all of that. So, <laughs> all right. So that's that brings me back to a three-part series. So let's turn our Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 37. Genesis, chapter 37. <clears throat> And uh, like I said, we'll be looking at the story of Joseph and draw some practical lessons from I've entitled my series uh, Lessons on Divine Providence in the Life of Joseph. Okay. Lessons on Divine Providence on the Life of Joseph. And we shall read chapter 37 and verses 1 down to verse 17. If you don't mind, shall we stand please to give God honor and due reverence? All the first 17 verses of Genesis 37 reading it responsively and then together in the 17th verse and jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of canaan now israel loved joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose, and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And he dreamed yet another dream, and told it his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun of the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the same. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. 
And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? Verse 17, And the man said, They are departed thence, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we humbly come before thee again, thanking you for this beautiful day. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and mercies renewed. Indeed, great is thy faithfulness. But we never cease to thank you for Calvary and all that's been accomplished at the cross through the shed blood of your Son. Thank you for Christ the incarnate Son of God, the tabernacle in human flesh to be our sin substitute and sin bearer. Thank you for raising him up from the dead as proof of his deity, as vindication of his claims, as guarantee of our own resurrection, and as proof that you have accepted the sacrifice of your Son as the only acceptable payment for our sin, so that anyone who will come to put their faith in Christ as Savior shall have forgiveness of sins and the promise of everlasting life. Thank you for salvation in spite of our unworthiness. So we pray if there is anyone here tonight who still does not know Jesus Christ, we ask your Holy Spirit to freely work using your sharp to edged sword to speak and to minister, to convict or rebuke whatever the need might be. We also pray give us hearts receptive to thy truth. We pray that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And we shall thank you for it. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> All right. As you know, the story of Joseph covers virtually half of the book of Genesis, from chapters 37 all the way to the 50th chapter. So there's no way we will be able to cover every portion of Scripture from 37 to 50 with only three messages, okay? But I would like to zero in in our study tonight, or beginning tonight, on uh, the three tests that God gave Joseph that I believe God allowed to happen in his life because God was using these tests to prove him, these tests to prepare him. And we find here in every test that Joseph went through, the hand of God was with him. God was using even wicked and ungodly men to accomplish his divine purposes in the life of this man of God named Joseph. That's why we entitled it The Lessons of divine providence. Joseph's story is a fascinating story of divine providence. It is full of profitable lessons for godly life and service. He knew, Joseph knew what it means to be abased. He knew what it meant to abound like the apostle Paul. And by the way, when Paul said in Philippians 4, he said, I have learned in whatsoever state I have therewith to be content. This is something we learn. We don't just learn it automatically. Paul had to learn it as a believer. Joseph learned it. You and I need to learn to be content in whatsoever state we are. Therewith to be content, whether we are to be abased or to abound. And Joseph went through those different phases in life just like we do in a fallen world. And thus, this is the beauty of studying biblical narratives, narratives of Scripture. Of course, they are narratives. They tell us how things happened. The writer is narrating to us how things happened. They are not normatives. You want to go to the normatives, 
This is how things should happen. You go to the law. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not lie. You go to the epistles. You need to put off the old man and put on the new man. This is how things ought to be. Those are the normatives. We go to the narratives. They tell us how things have actually happened, not necessarily how things ought to be. It's important we understand that every time we study Scripture. I remember talking to some two gentlemen who were twisting Scripture and they were trying to justify their immoral, immoral lifestyle by saying, well, David had many wives. Solomon had many wives and concubines. It's biblical, they say. Oh, it's biblical, all right, but you find them in the narratives of Scripture. <clears throat> they tell us how things happen, not necessarily how things ought to happen. Now, I say that because we're looking at a narrative, and at least in Joseph's case, he's one of the two biblical characters where we almost find no fault on him. The other one is Daniel. And he would be a, an ideal. Not that he was sinless. Obviously, he was not. He was born a sinner, just like everybody else since the fall of Adam and Eve. <clears throat> but in so far as the narrative goes, he seemed to be almost a blameless character. He had some flaws, obviously. But <clears throat> at least his life, in all of these tests that God gave him, God allowed him to go through these tests, and in all, every one of these tests, he passed the test. Summa cum laude. Every one of them. And I hope every one of us, when we go and God allows us to go through those tests in our school of Christian experience, that we would learn from Joseph so that we could pass the tests as well. Okay? So this is what we will be learning in our study of Joseph. He was called to face three powerful tests. He, and he passed all of them. Thank you. <clears throat> so let me mention those three tests. First is the test of adversity. We will be focusing on that tonight. On Sunday morning, he went through the test of allurement. That will be in Sunday morning. And then Sunday afternoon, the test of advancement. Okay. Sometimes as we go through different transitions and different phases in life, we think, I've been through that. I have finally arrived. And the moment you think you have finally arrived, here you are faced with another one. We never graduate in this life. We only graduate at the time of the day of glorification. But we are just passing throughs. And God allows us to go through different tests. And he wants us, just like in Joseph's case, to pass through each one of these tests, summa cum laude. Now, let's talk about the word allurement first before we go to the test of adversity. The word providence. The word basically, when we talk about divine providence, we are talking about God's work. But we're talking about specifically the work of God, wherein God himself preserves and governs his creation. That's the God of the Bible. He not only created the world in six literal 24-hour days by the fiat of his word. After he created everything, he continues to sustain everything so that everything, Colossians chapter 1 tells us, he, all things were made by him and was made for him. He is the purpose of creation. And by him all things What's the word? Consist. 
That word consist means hold together. Everything holds together by the word of his mouth. Can you imagine what the world will be like if God for a smallest fraction of a second starts withholding his providence on his creation? It is going to be chaos. That's exactly what's going to happen. But everything is sustained. He is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things. That is why we believe in the God of providence. And that is why Christians believe in Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Nothing happens by accident in the Christian's life. So there is no such thing as luck for the Christian. Wala in Tagalog, walang malas. Walang suerte. At kung hindi nila makuha yun, malas lang sila. Well, there is no such thing. Because, and that's the reason why Paul could say, in everything, give thanks. That's a hard pill to swallow. When you're stuck in traffic, Metro Manila traffic, for instance, or we were headed for Baguio just about two weeks ago, and we were stuck in traffic because somewhere in San Simon is there was a flood. And we went, what usually takes three and a half hours, took us nine hours going and 10 hours coming back. And you say, thank you, Lord. <laughs> or when you're stuck at 11, 12 midnight, and you get a flat tire under the rain, and you say, thank you, Lord. That's really a hard pill to swallow. That's not easy. But once you're reminded, you know what? All things work together for good. I am preaching to you, brethren, as I'm preaching to myself. Every time we go through unfavorable circumstances, you and I know that our sinful nature raises its ugly head and tries to cry out and complain and whine. We could hardly see the hand of God in the midst of our trials. But this is exactly the, the lesson that the Spirit of God wants to teach us, especially as we go to the story of Joseph. Why do you think at the end of chapter 50, Joseph was able to say, you meant it evil, but God meant it for good. What a powerful statement of faith. Boy, what tough trials he went through. And perhaps you and I are going through the dregs at the moment. Apparently, it is no accident why you're here. This message is for you as it is intended for me. Priceless lessons we can learn <coughs> as we understand the providence of God in the midst of our trials. Well, you say, what happened? Apparently, the 17 verses we read does not cover the whole story. But I hope you're familiar with that story from 37 all the way through 50. And if you're not, I challenge you and encourage you to read all those chapters up until Sunday. You get to be familiar with the two other tests that we will be discussing on Sunday morning. Well, what happened? Well, Joseph <clears throat> was, was scorned. They say if there was some weakness Joseph had, he was kind of too transparent. He was very open so that when his father gave him that coat and here he was, so happy and bragging, but my dad gave me a real coat of many colors. And his brother was saying, look at this weird guy. He's bragging about he's a favorite son. And because of that, his brother started to envy him. 
And you know what envy does? I think you know what has happened perhaps to your life. Some close loved one or relative only because of envy would go and ruin your character and stab you at the back. This is exactly what happened with Joseph. He was scorned by his brothers. Note in Genesis 37 verse 4. When his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Joseph did not know what was going through in their hearts, but things were brewing in their hearts against their own sibling. See, what a despicable thing to do. And it does not stop there. Notice verses 5 through 8. Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it to his brethren. And of course, the dream kind of showed him he was going to be powerful at the end. So he said, and they, they hated him all the more. Verse 5. He said unto them, here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. I said, look at this. Lunatic. I mean, he thinks he's going to be a big shot someday above us. <clears throat> and shalt thou indeed reign over us? His brothers say to him. Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Jump down to verse 11. His brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. Jump down to verse 20. Come, excuse me, come now, excuse me, let us slay him. His brethren conspired to kill him. What a despicable thing to do inside the family. And I guess you and I know of actual scenarios like this in contemporary situations. Siblings out to get each other out of their own throats. It already happened. And if you are going through that, well, you were not alone. Joseph went through the same. <clears throat> so come now, they said, slay him and cast him into some pit, and we will say some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Okay. So something was brewing, as you say, Joseph was a dreamer, and they were rejecting Joseph's dream. And it was God's revelation during that time. That was his word to Joseph, that he would eventually provide for his brothers in Egypt, as you were from, if you're familiar with the rest of the narrative. It is a hard thing to be hated for announcing and living the truth by those who are close to you. When you hear the word of God, receive the word of God and start proclaiming God's word and God's revelation. Listen, sometimes the very people you thought will be welcoming your message are the very people who will be turning their back against you. The apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It almost sounds like a promise. You want to live right? and please God, and live by God's revelation found in His Word, you can expect persecution. People will either show your, their highest admiration because of your, how you regard precious the Word of God is, 
or perhaps they will show their deepest animosity. And Jesus said, sometimes your enemies will come from your own household. That's just the reality of things. He was never a schemer. He never manipulated the substance of those dreams as far as Joseph was concerned. He believed in the mighty power of God to meet his needs. And faith is live, living without scheming. He was just declaring God's revelation to him. And yet he was hated. So not only was he scorned by his brothers, verses 23 to 28 of the same chapter, he was sold by his brothers. Note with me in verse 23. And it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren <clears throat> that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread. <clears throat> Imagine how callous their consciences were. They threw their brother into the pit, and they, here they were, eating bread. I said, that's okay. And they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it that we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. If we kill him, that will do us no good. We might as well sell him so we can earn some profit. He is our brother and our flesh, and his brethren were content. And verse 28, And there, then there passed by Midianites merchantmen, and they drew and lift up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. So not only was he scorned by his brothers and sold by his brethren, he was also subjugated or enslaved with no rights by his owner. You jump down to chapter 39, verses 1 through 6. Joseph was brought down to, the, to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, so that the Lord, and the, the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. So from the pit, eventually was sold, <clears throat> eventually to uh, the Ishmaelites, and from the pit eventually, then after this, if you read the rest of chapter 39, let me read down verse 4. Joseph found grace in his sight. He served him. He made him overseer over his house. And all that he had, he put into his hand. And it came to pass, <clears throat> the time that he had made him overseer in the house, so you would think he had the pit experience. Now he was at Potiphar's house, and he was entrusted by uh, Pharaoh himself. But what happens is uh, verse 6, he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and he, knew, and he knew not all he had save the bread which he did eat and Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. The rest of the chapter is the story of Potiphar's wife alluring him. <clears throat> and scheming Potiphar's wife 
because of Do Joseph's refusal, eventually fabricates a story, he's thrown back into prison. But where was God's hand all that time? Where was God all that time? God has never and will never leave his throne. That's the comfort that you and I as believers have. So he was subjugated to be enslaved with no rights at all by his owner. But he understood there's one thing we can learn from Joseph. In every trial he went through, he understood that God had a purpose. And his purpose is always righteous. It's always just. It's always good. It's always loving. And in the case of Job, remember, sometimes his purpose is just unknown. But it's still good and just and loving. But sometimes it's just unknown. In the case of Job, when he was reading in pain from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet, three of his friends, what kind of friends were they? I mean, they were believing in some kind of a prosperity gospel. In other words, if you're healthy, it's always God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy. You're going through some tough times, then you must be outside. The, well, there must be sin in your life. Do you have friends like that? We have some people, churches like that around our area in Metro Manila. They believe it's always God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy. And their counsel never brings comfort to your soul. They make you feel guilty. What is it that I'm going through? But let me remind you, brethren, just like Joseph, you and I need to understand the eternal principle stated in Romans 8.28. He was learning that before being entrusted with life's advancement to become Pharaoh in the palace, then he must come through tests of life's adversity. It is the same with us, brethren. God allows us to go through some tough trials. And that's because he has a good, loving purpose. We may not understand it at the moment. But like what Paul said in Romans 8, 28, he didn't say, I feel all things work together for good. He said what? We know all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You just know it because the Bible says so. You don't have to feel it. In fact, more often than not, you don't feel it. You just know it because God's word says so. So let's go, having given my introduction, let's go to the first test. Remember three tests. The test of adversity, the test of allurement, and the test of advancement. Let's talk about the test of adversity. So you say, what is adversity? Well, let me suggest this definition. Adversity, are, these are winds coming at you at a contrary direction. You go south and the winds are going north. They're going contrary to the direction you have taken. It is opposition with a spirit of animosity. It is you find yourself in hostile circumstances invading your life. Difficulties, sorrow, hardships, 
that you go through. And I guess perhaps it's, I won't be surprised, some of us are going through it right now. Many of God's people are subjected to this, the test of adversity. And it could be at this moment when these tests come our way in the divine providence of God, it could be our greatest motivation for spiritual growth. But it could also be our deadliest means of discouragement. The difference lies on whether or not we understand God's purpose for adversity. The same, the same adversity that you are currently going through, God wants you to grow. It's a wonderful opportunity, a stepping stone for spiritual growth and maturity. But the same adversity, Satan wants to use it so that you will doubt God, question God, whine against God and say, God, why are you allowing me to go through this? Satan is his purpose. God has his. Whose purpose are you going to submit to? I think the answer to that question is obvious. We will want God's purpose. But during the heat of the adversity, that's not exactly what we see right away. Like I said, it's when our sinful nature raises its ugly head because it just wants to crave for convenience and satisfaction rather than go through the trial or the crucible of testing. See, we all want instant gratification, instant coffee, but God allows us to go through the grind because he wants us to come forth as gold. That's the beauty of what the Bible tells us, and that's the truth of the matter. So what kind of adversity does God use to help us grow? Well, let me suggest this. The kind of adversity that God most effectively uses to help us grow has three characteristics. Number one, it is greater than our ability to resolve. In other words, it leaves us in a state of helplessness. Uh, you're not going to grow too much there. When God places you in a situation, I'm totally helpless. I'm like Moses now, about the soldiers, Egyptian soldiers are right behind me, and I see the Red Sea in front of me. There is no way of escape. But it's interesting, it's in those moments God intervenes. And then you see the hand of God. That's the first kind of adversity we have an opportunity to grow. Second, it's just, it invariably comes in multiples. Have you ever been through that? As the old saying goes, when it rains, it pours. Just like Job, remember? Hindi pa tapos yung isang problema, eto na naman. Hindi pa nga tapos yung pangalawa at una, eto na naman. See, and you say, Lord, why? Because I want you to grow. Perhaps some of us are going through that. Third characteristic of adversity where God helps us to grow. Number one, it's greater than our ability to resolve. Number two, it invariably comes in multiples. And number three, it is almost always incomprehensible. So that we cannot see with the eyes of faith that he has a purpose. We, we can only see it through the eyes of faith that God has a purpose. 
So you see, there are the Egyptians behind. There's the Red Sea in front of me. I'm stuck. I'm now staring at the blank wall. What am I going to do? That's when God is testing your faith so that you will grow. And perhaps if you are going through that, God, he has placed you in a, in a phase where you can really grow. What a wonderful opportunity this is. So what is God's purpose for adversity? For the rest of this evening, I would like to suggest seven purposes that God allow, why God allows us to go through adversity. When we understand these, we can transform adversity from deadly discouragement to powerful motivation for spiritual growth. I am appalled by some of the literature that is coming out. A lot of ink is being spilled, written by some liberals who using Christian jargon. And many of them come from this side of the globe. They talk about adversity and they teach you to blame your circumstances, blame your friend, blame your parents. That's the reason why you're going through that is because you were not raised properly. He, they prepare you and condition you to have a mind of a victim's mindset. Listen, if you are a Christian, you are never a victim. God intends you and I to be victors despite the toughest adversities God allows us to go through. I don't care what your circumstances are, but God does. And you and I may be going through the toughest we've ever imagined, but God wants us to come out of this as a victor. Stop blaming your past. Stop blaming your parents. Stop blaming anybody else. Your response is your responsibility. You cannot blame anybody else. Well, you know, God, I am carnal because he did this. I am carnal and bitter. It's because my parents did this. Listen, you, can, you might as well stop blaming anybody else. Circumstances do not make character. They only reveal the inside stuff. I like what Jim Berg said in his book. He said, it's just like the teabag. Yung cha, teabag, you place it in hot water. What happens? The hot water turns dark. Now, why did it turn dark? Is it because of the water? No, it turned dark because of what's inside the teabag. Those had hot water are the waters of our circumstances. And we often blame the hot water of circumstances. I would not have been this way if not for my girlfriend saying no to me or whatever. So we have a lot of crybabies out there, so immature. They blame the smallest adversity and they blame everybody else. They never outgrow and stay babes. Maybe if they are indeed Christians, they never grow up in the faith because they always blame someone else or something else. It's time to stop that. Circumstances do not make your character. They only reveal your character, the inside stuff. So when you're going through the hot water of trials, that will reveal the inside stuff. Don't blame somebody else or anything else. So let's go to the seven purposes why God allows us to go through adversity. Number one. 
First, it may be disciplinary. God allows us to go through tough circumstances. Sometimes it is God's way of disciplining us. Turn to me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses 30 and 32. This is the passage on the Lord's table. The Apostle Paul was giving instructions to the church of Corinth. Now, if you're familiar with the background, the believers in Corinth, I mean, it was a band of believers just like us. They have trusted Christ as Savior. But Paul said they were babes in Christ. There was so much bickering, so much backbiting, so much division, so much party spirit, so much uh, there was toleration of immorality. One brother, a member of that church, has committed incest, and they did not even, the worst thing is not only did he not repent of his sin, the church did not do anything about it. They did not even blush. 1 Corinthians 6, they brought matters they could not resolve internally within the family of God to the heathen courts. How could they be a witness? Chapter 7, they were talking about their, how to properly treat with the opposite sex. Apparently, there was, they were lacking in that area too. From chapter 8 all the way to chapter 11, there were the misuse of Christian liberty. I'm saved anyway. I can live as I please. A lot of Christians are thinking that way. I'm saved. I'm no longer under the law. I can live as I please. Wrong. Whether you realize it or not, brethren, you and I are slaves. Either of Satan or sin, if you're not saved, or you're a slave of Jesus Christ. You cannot, and we are not allowed to live as we please. Yes, we are free from the bondage of sin, the bondage of Satan, the bondage of the law. That means we're free to live a life to please God, not live a life at my whim. But that's what Paul was addressing, chapters 11, all the way to uh, chapter 8, all the way to chapter 11. It's in chapter 11 Paul dealt with this issue. The situation was so bad that even during the worship service, carnality was surfacing. Well, what was the problem? During the Lord's table. Something like, instead of being, the purpose of having the Lord's table is what? Jesus was being quoted. Paul said, Jesus said, this do for what reason? What purpose? In remembrance of me. Every time we have the Lord's table, our purpose is to remember him. You know why? Because one of the most permeating diseases, if not the most permeating disease in the Christian church, is the disease called forgetfulness. So the Lord has to remind us through the Lord's table, this do in remembrance of me. And sure enough, in the church of Corinth, a bunch of carnal believers, <coughs> they forgot the true significance of the Lord's table. <coughs> it became just like a potluck. But remembering Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was not at all in their mind. And since the division was already taking place, some of the well-to-do members brought plenty some of the less fortunate did not have anything to bring, and it added to the division that was already existing there. During the Lord's table, there was carnality, and we find in chapter 11 more specifically, <coughs> Paul indicted them and said they were partaking of the Lord's table unworthily. And as a result, verse 30 to 32, for this cause, many are weak and sickly, among you and many sleep 
Okay. He was not talking about what was happening during the worship service. Many sleep. Okay. This is a euphemism for death. Some of them died prematurely because they were partaking of the Lord's table unworthily. <clears throat> so this was a problem. You move on to chapters 12 to 14, the misuse of spiritual gifts. Chapter, uh, that's why you find chapter 13, the great love chapter. R before chapter 14 and chapter 12, because it's number 13. What I'm talking about, they were misusing their spiritual gifts. They were using their gifts and talents for self-glorification. Galingkoa, kumanta, etc. Rather than for the edification of the body of Christ. Chapter 15, Paul had to address, address the problem of false doctrine. Particularly the doctrine of the resurrection was being twisted or maligned. So what a mess this church was. No wonder God had to deal with them in a disciplinary way. So, life is built upon universal and non-optional principles revealed in Scripture. If we disobey, we can expect divine disciplinary action. And this is exactly what happened in the church of Corinth. The death of Christ is sacrificial. It is selfless. It is a powerful manifestation of God's love for us. So when he deals with us this way, it means he loves us. He loves these carnal believers. That is why he was disciplining them. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why God is allowing you to go through some tough times. It's for disciplinary purposes. Let's go to the second. Turn with me to uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It may be that God's purpose is that it is a deterrent, a deterrent. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Notice in verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now notice, this is the great apostle Paul. The man that God used to write 13 New Testament inspired epistles. <clears throat> and yet, he went through some kind of physical ailment. He called it a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Well, and then he asked the Lord thrice, verse 8, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it may depart from me. Some say this thorn in the flesh was probably an eye defect. That's why he needed an amanuensis. We'll say, well, what's that amanuensis? It's another term for secretary. Okay. Sometimes Paul sought for secretarial help to write his epistles because he had an eye defect. So perhaps this was an eye defect, and he was asking the Lord thrice that it would depart from him. And verse 9, he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul said, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In other words, notice, Paul says in verse 7, Lest I should be exalted above measure. He has not yet been exalted above measure. Notice the word lest. He wrote 13 New Testament epistles. It could be easy for him to be carried away in pride. You see, I was the human instrument. I authored 13 New Testament inspired epistles. But the Lord gave him this thorn in the flesh, lest he should be exalted above measure. 
He had not yielded to temptation. He had not given in to sin. And therefore we say one reason why God allows circumstances or trials or adversity to come our way, as in the case of Paul, it may be because of it. he intended to be a deterrent. In Paul's case, a deterrent against pride and therefore in order to keep him humble. It kept him from conceit regarding the revelations he received. He had to be reminded that God is the source of blessing and that James tells in chapter 4, 6, and 7 that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we should be thankful. Paul was thankful. He, Lord, three times, please remove it. God did not. And he said, my grace is sufficient. All right, Lord, if that's your will, I submit. God had a purpose. He didn't want him to ruin his life because of pride. And it could be that that's God's purpose for you. So first, it is a disciplinary. Second, it may be a deterrent. Number three, it may be didactic. It's simply another term for God wants, us to, God wants to teach us something. It's didactic from the Greek word didaskolos. It means to teach us something. Turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. <clears throat> Here the Apostle Paul says, And not only so, but we glory in what? In tribulations. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So without hope, no man can live. Tribulation, we glory in tribulation. The Greek word for tribulation is the Greek word thlipsis. And the word means to squash. We glory in moments when God squashes us. Have you ever felt that way? You're going to the trials and boy, you felt you're being squashed. And this is exactly God's purpose here. Paul says we glory in being squashed or crushed. To be pressed together in all sides like grapes go through the wine press. It was used, the word thlipsis was used to describe an ancient mode of execution. It was an ancient mode of execution against a criminal. A criminal worthy of the death penalty, they would place a boulder, a huge rock on his chest until he would literally die. A boulder on his chest. That's what the word thlipsis means. That's how it was used in biblical times. It was used to describe a huge place, a huge rock placed on their chest cavity of a convicted criminal until he suffocates to death. Have you ever felt that way in your trials? And Paul said he God allows him to go through this so that he would learn patience. Hupomone in the Greek, it means to abide under. This is not some kind of stoic, fatalistic passivity, just like the Muslims say, Allah wills it. But it is a gallant, joyful, and willful endurance for the cause of Christ. It also produces experience. In other words, it talks about a tried and proven character. It produces hope. And I've seen God work in the midst, 
in the past amid toughest circumstances. And if I've seen that, as Paul saw it, I'm sure we can see that work through you as well in the present. You see, a man can live without uh, a man can live without 40 to 50 days without food, three to four days without water, eight to 15 minutes without oxygen, but man cannot live one second without hope. And that's why God allows us to go through trials, because tribulation works patience, and patience experience and experience hope. What a great God we have. <clears throat> Number four, not only is it a uh, disciplinary and a deterrent or didactic. Number four, it is demonstrative. In other words, just like in the case of Job, in Job chapters one and two. In other words, he may want you to be a demonstration of true faithfulness and godliness. No matter how high the cost. It costs to be a Christian, but it costs a million times more not to be one. The Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave. Everybody can say that. The Lord taketh away. Everybody can say that. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Only the godly can say that. God wants to demonstrate his power in and through you. That's perhaps, I have a friend, I quite, I quite, a couple of them. They're both uh, Americans. <clears throat> Pastor David Moss in Pennsylvania, North Hills Bible Church. And he would email us update about his wife's condition, having cancer. His wife went home to be the Lord two days ago, informed us about it. We've been praying for her condition for over a year now. And he would update us. And the last email we got last week is, he said, my wife requested I bring her to the sofa. And she said, this is going to be the, my last movement to be left in the sofa. And sure enough, two days later, the Lord took her home. But you know what? For the Christian, <clears throat> To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In the words of the inspired pen of Paul, he said, for to me to live is Christ. But you know what death is? It is gain. He's, she's in a far better place than every one of us. I don't know if you've heard a man named Dr. David Beale. He used to be a professor of history at Bob Jones University. And uh, we got acquainted I read both of his books on church history, particularly the history of fundamentalism. His first book came out in the early 90s, History of Biblical Fundamentalism from 1850 till 1900s. His book came out, a more recent book came out just last year, History of Fundamentalism from 1850 to 2020, a more updated book. And I said, I want to see what's going on with fundamentalism in America. And he doesn't paint a very encouraging picture. So since then, we, got we had communication. And uh, when we got to be acquainted, I read, I read your articles on your website. I have watched some of your videos. I read it with delight. 
So I was thinking of inviting him to our conference, our annual conference. He said, you know what, brother? My ministry now is just to watch and take care of my wife. My wife is ill. We are 86 years old. And that's my ministry now. So he just wrote me last week, updating me. My wife seems to be improving, but keep on praying for us. And I say, look at these great giants of the faith. What a demonstration of faith. They're used to the crowds preaching, teaching. A lot of preachers have really benefited from their ministry. But they're going through the tough trials now. Somehow the Lord has limited their ministry. They're stuck home. No more crowds. Just attending to their spouse. And I say, what a great display. Demonstration of faithfulness. God sometimes allows us to go through that. Because he wants us, our lives to be demonstrative. Number five. It may be God, you, God is allowing you to go through tough times because it may be discriminatory. Discriminatory, sorry. Meaning, it is intended to distinct, distinguish between two sets of things. Between the hypocrites and the martyrs. To distinguish the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. You see, when adversity comes, who goes? Usually the hypocrites go. They easily fold up. Why? Because exactly, they're hypocrites. Martyrs are not made the same stuff. Martyrs are willing to go through the dregs. And that's the most eloquent proof of the resurrection. If they're genuine believers, they know what it means to be raised up into newness of life in Christ. And therefore, God allows us Christians to go through that so that he can discriminate who are the hypocrites from the authentic believer? Remember, 11 cowardly disciples hiding behind locked doors were willing to lay their lives for the truth. See, men do not lie for lies. They die for the truth. We have a lot of examples. Maybe let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I was, once, I was kind of intrigued by this passage before verse 19. <clears throat> Paul said, For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. There was a problem of carnality in the church of Corinth. There was heresy being propagated. Division. And Paul said, Heresies are happening among you. And there is a purpose. So that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. The hypocrites are sifted away. But the genuine people, Christians, are the ones who stay and are, continue on with the ministry. Number six, second to the last. It could be God is allowing you to go through it because he intended it to be a disinfectant. In other words, it removes the impurities of our life. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. <clears throat> we read, Wherein you greatly rejoice, Peter addressing believers, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. And why would God allow that? 
so that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Say, Pastor, wouldn't it be better? I got saved. I trusted Christ as Savior. He takes me home to heaven right away. So convenient. But God does not allow us to go through that most often. More often, after trusting in Christ as Savior, we are justified by faith, and He wants us to go through the process of sanctification where He removes those impurities before He takes us home to be with Him on the day of glorification. That's God's purpose. You might be going through it because it is intended to be a disinfectant. Finally, for my last point, number seven, it is always for development. It is developmental. It is always painful to go through trials, but it is always intended to be productive. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. The Bible says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, then that's evidence. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all, that is, all believers are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, our Heavenly Father, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyful, but grievous. But nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So it is always designed to enable us to bear more fruit. These are the seven reasons why God allowed Joseph to go through the test of adversity. And if you really think about it, wow, thankfully I didn't go through that, at least not to that extent. And thankfully maybe most of us did not or are not going to that extent, but we know that at, that, at the moment you are going through some real tough trials and that you say, I'm at the end of the line, I'm staring at the blank wall. Lord, help me to see your wisdom on how to deal with this situation. But God's purpose this is either an opportunity for you to grow, it will be an opportunity for you, for the devil to win and make you defeated and discouraged and depressed. Thankfully, in Joseph's case, he passed the test of adversity from the pit, eventually to prison, and later on to the palace. He passed the first test, summa cum laude, and I trust you and I will go through the same. Remember, before honor comes humility. Before prosperity comes poverty. Before exaltation comes humiliation. Before joy comes sorrow. Before the resurrection comes death. There is no cross. There is no crown without the cross. Are you going through tough times? Then by the grace of God, let's pray. 
that we will pass the test of adversity. Summa cum laude. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement from thee. And perhaps some of us needed to hear that message at this present time. Thank you that your grace is always sufficient. Let these truths sink into our hearts. Big, take deep root and it will bear fruit in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>